0: Welcome to the Evolving Enterprises podcast, stories of growth and transformation. We're moving on now to look at formulating strategy and how we can formulate great corporate strategy, how we can make a difference, how we can use systems thinking as a way of being able to build a good strategy. So welcome to Prachelle, my latest starter, who's um, who's going to help sort of talk us through some of the aspects of psychology that are related to strategy, formulation, corporate strategy, etc. So let's begin thinking about what strategy is. So many years ago, strategy was thought of as this sort of great pronouncement that was sort of released from on high in the organization. And in recent years, I think we've come to doubt that actually a, a great sort of pronouncement of what the organization is or should be from from on high is necessarily the best way of delivering um, what's what's needed. So strategy is basically a long-term set of goals. And it's also ways of getting to those long-term goals. What are the means of being able to get there, not just the end? And what we've also discovered recently is that it's not really about a pronouncement of, uh, you know, we are going to be the market leader in whatever it is. But it's also about, well, where are we now? And what would it take for us to make our position stronger? What would it take for us to sort of be more competitive in the environment we're in? So strategy is very much emergent, as in dealing with the the current business climate and uh, figuring out the best way of being able to manage within that climate and being able to thrive within the climate. So. I would suggest that all strategy is emergent strategy <laughs> there's There's a lot of talk about and um, how little of the the great sort of corporate strategy that's put together is actually used and I think it's it's quite true when you look through the academic sources and look at the the people who have reported on strategy uh, and the figures are somewhere between ninety and ninety nine percent of all strategic work is never implemented now you might look at that and say well first of all what we'll complete utter waste of time and secondly that can't possibly be true can it but i think actually it is probably true and i don't think it is necessarily a great waste of time that not everything is implemented because things change things move on Uh, Lots of people set themselves a strategy of being, you know, the world's greatest, whatever it is, and they find that actually the market in that area is starting to disappear. So maybe you don't want to be, you know, the world's greatest widget maker if there's no widgets being bought. Maybe you need to diversify and do something that's a bit different. So emergent strategy is really important and um, getting our strategy enacted uh, really, really matters. And so what this tends to lead towards is a discussion about change. We talked in an previous episodes of the podcast about three factors, the rationality, the politics and the emotion. And those all come to bear in strategy. They come to bear enormously because, you know, organisations set a course to be what they believe that they want to be, what they believe is right for them. And so emotion plays a very big part in the, the decision making about, you know, what is right, what is good, what is what is appropriate and naturally you know we have a a view of what we should have and and that view can sometimes be a bit clouded that view can sometimes be um even deluded about you know where we are and what our our kind of place is as, as a corporation or as an individual in the world and therefore you know um, we, we have to be quite careful. As, con, as a consultant, I have to be quite careful about thinking about um, what does the rationality from this position tell me? What does the emotion from this position tell me? What What's the, the political environment here? And what do I need to sort of steer clear of in that way? So so essentially, the process of, of forming strategy is relatively straightforward. You know, it's, it's what, what's the long-term goal? How do you get there? When I ask almost every enterprise that I've worked with what their long-term goal is, There's a sort of pause and then they say, well, our business is about, I don't know, frozen, whatever it is. Our business is about whatever. Yeah, fine. I know your business is about that. I know you're making wheels for cars. I know you're making, I don't know, and bicycles. I know you're making, you know, screws, bolts, rivets, whatever it happens to be. That's what your business is about. But if you look back over, you know, say 10 years, what, what has your business been about? What have been the highlights of your business? If we look forward 10 years and we say, well, what is it that we want to look back on? What is that? What, what is it that we want to look back on? What's really great? What is it that's been uh, amazing? What would you um, say? Yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of that as a, as a group of directors, as a, a chief executive. What is it that you, know, you, would, you would take pride in? And that's the, the essence of what you want to set the strategy to be. It's about making sure that the organization is well positioned so that, you know, you can be proud of the organization as we go forward. And actually having got that, then it's a whole lot easier to figure out, well, what should then the organization be geared to delivering? How how can we deliver what we hope to deliver? And then what should the metrics be on that? So if you'd be really proud to have, you know, extended your family business to be not just a say, a UK-wide business or an American business, um, but a, a big international conglomerate. If that's what you want to achieve, how do you do it? Do you grow it office by office? Do you do it country nation by nation? And what's, what's your strategy for growth? Once you've got that, you can have some metrics. You can say, okay, I'm going to be really proud if we've opened you know, 10 new offices in the world this year. What do we need to do then? What resource do we need to do it? What people do we need to do it? How do we, how do we set a course to, to deliver that? And that's the essence of, of strategy. And it sounds so simple when you talk about it like that, like, well, it's just, you know, just the the work of a few hours. But actually, the work of making sure that strategy is right, testing that strategy is is considerable. And there's no point in launching something and finding, hmm, we've run out of money or, well, that was really interesting, but the competition just did it three months ago. (laughs) So we've got to be very aware of the competitive market. And what I often suggest people do is think about, you know, not only the kind of plan A, plan B, et cetera, all the things that, you know, we've been doing probably for years, but also think about, well, what what happens in a particular scenario? So if the if the competitive environment gets more competitive, what happens then? How do you deal with the fact that, you know, things, that the competition could grow? You know, if there's not very many barriers to entry, there can be an awful lot more people come along. If there's a, an area that seemed to be, you know, quite a, a sort of good, you know, a good area for people to move into, then, uh, of course, there's going to be more competition. I um, mean, a similar sort of thing to this happened um, in the, the UK. So in the UK during the pandemic, a lot of people decided that they wanted to adopt an animal, and so the sort of local kind of kennels ran out of cats and dogs and uh, all, all other animals that could be adopted. And it's sort of the first time in history that's really happened. Generally, the kennels are, are kind of bulging with with animals that you know need a new home. So, having exhausted that supply, the price then of, of puppies, of kittens, etc., went up. And so, of course, then new people enter the market and, you know, perhaps those who shouldn't have entered the market, entered the market. But the competition started to increase. And then, of course, you know, supply and demand came back into balance and the price dropped. And then, you know, you find that those people who were breeding from their dogs or cats or whatever found that, you know, they didn't earn as much as they thought. So they probably would have, would have uh, dropped the idea. But that's, that's what happens all the time in business. And there are various recipes, there are various ways of being able to deal with that competitive environment. And you can think about, you know, those. There are a great many um, patterns of strategy. Patrick Hoverstadt captured these brilliantly in his his book on literally patterns of strategy. You can think about ways of um, dealing with particularly difficult sort of um, competition. Um, Patrick illustrates one of these with the the competitive environment in the motorcycle industry. So back in the the 1980s, the the motorcycle industry was very much dominated by Honda and Yamaha. One of those decided to build the world's largest motorcycle production factory. And you can't do that without the other one noticing. So the other one noticed, and they realized that they had very limited time to respond. And if if that new factory was online, then essentially there, they didn't have a sort of Competitive uh, some price anymore. They could be beaten on price, and a price war could start, in which you know they would lose. So instead, the the strategy that was adopted was to segment the market. So for every every one motorbike that the competitor had, essentially two were brought in, and you could have it in, in different ways and different different styles. So you you could you essentially destroyed the competitive advantage that really big production facility had. You were you were down to sort of much more custom design, much more sort of in the way of choice that the consumer had. Yeah, and, and actually, that proved to be decisive. So, in these sorts of strategic issues where, you know, this, this is a very common one that you find yourself um, being the sort of, you know, the, the underdog in, a, in a, a big corporate fight out, what, what can you do? You can do a lot of things. You don't have to just roll over and say, well, we'll, we'll have to accept the fact that it's going to be very difficult to make any money in this. Uh, you, you can very easily um, sort of come back, come up with a strategy which is just as good as the strategy that's been rolled out by the bigger player. And so, but this this means that strategy is so important for us. And there's a few things that I think are, are really good to look at in in terms of corporate strategy. One of the first things is your core competence, and this very much goes back to the kind of psychology of what you want in the organisation, what you want as a as an entity, um, and and um, there, there was a a very famous paper by Hemel and Prahalad that was launched in, I think it was in the 90s. It's pretty old now, but it talked about literally the core competencies of the corporation and how you identify them. Uh, and that's so important to be able to identify and, and find your, your core competence, because your core competence probably isn't about the market that you serve or about your customer base. Your core competence may be quite different from that. The core competence that Apple have in making those beautiful displays that we all admire on uh, iPhones on and sort of tablets etc that's that's a real market winner because as much as everybody else has tried to copy it it's not quite as sleek the interface is is a little clunky in comparison and you know those of us that are not necessarily great apple fans always look at an apple device and say yeah it's, it's really got some advantages So that that core competence, one of the many core competencies that Apple have, is, is so important to them in remaining ahead of that market and remaining the lead in smartphones and so identifying your own core competencies is is key we we have that as as individuals identifying what you're really good at in the world and doing that really well is so important and it can make the the difference between you know success and failure for an individual for a business etc so so having that sort of dose of of reality and understanding what's really there is is important getting under the surface understanding as a business what what matters to you there's another another strand that is is also really important, which is knowing where to apply your innovation. And there was another classic 90s 2000s paper by Mars and Snow that looked at essentially where your sort of innovation is is best applied. Mm. And so innovators do things differently. So, for example, Sony, as, as quite an innovative organization, would be you know one, one of the, the companies that would be great at finding a, a new market, a niche market for for their, their product, as Apple would. Apple are innovating very much in terms of taking things into a new market, using their core competencies that they've gained. And let's face it, Apple was a computer company, using the core competencies they had as a computer company to vault into the personal communication market. And they did it brilliant. Sony used the core competencies that they had in building small bits of electronics um, to to get themselves into the the consumer entertainment market back in the 80s. And there's a a whole lot of those jumps that have been um, sort of put in place. You can see that in um, many of the new sort of organizations that have just recently taken over. Um, They've they've taken a, a core competence, something they're really good at, and they've been able to apply it. And so Mars and Snow say that you can have a core competence which um, helps you with marketing uh, or which helps you with product and service delivery. So Toyota is a completely different organization. Mm. Toyota apply their core competence to making the best car possible. And and generally, Toyotas don't go wrong. You know, you don't find many broken down on the side of the road if you do it's probably because they haven't been maintained mm. you know it's it's for that reason but generally a, a well-maintained Toyota will go on a very very long time if it if it does eventually give up it gives up and it's very old I remember having a having a Toyota which I pensioned off at 17 years and it was still still had a lot of life in it unfortunately my mother-in-law had driven it so it was a bit a bit damaged but uh, you know <laughs> but that's yeah I mean th- th- there are loads and loads of those stories of sort of cars going on forever and, and the reason for that is because they have a real commitment to making the best possible product. They're not innovating in terms of, you know, marketing. They're not making cars that fly. They're not sort of the world leaders in electric cars, particularly. But, you know, what they make, and they make very well and they're very well respected. And so you, you can position yourself into one of those uh, sort of two places or you can position yourself between them. You can you can be someone that analyzes what's going on uh, in terms of uh, the, the the sort of market shapers and movers and be very quick to react. Uh, so I, I talked um, in podcast one about an organization that had been really quick to react and were first to market. Uh, and so they, they'd they analyzed the competition and they decided to beat it. They, they weren't going to go in with everybody else. They were going going to go in ahead. And so their their competence was very much on utilizing all their experience of delivery uh, of something slightly different to launch a completely new product in, into a market that uh, hadn't been sort of there before. And so there's, there's there's some really interesting uh, sort of dynamics around that, around how you do this and how you formulate a strategy which sits beautifully with your core competencies. And it's it's not difficult. It's something that you know you can you can sort of work through really quickly and really easily. And it's something that anybody can do. Anybody can figure out your own personal core competencies, your own core competencies for an organisation, and you can make a strategy that fits beautifully with that. And you can also test it. We talked in the the modeling um, sort of discussion about how important it is to be sure that models are right and what you can do to to make sure that your your model fits the circumstances. And so, yes, you want a plan A and a plan B, et cetera, but you could test those plan A, the plan B, the plan C against different, you know, in in different circumstances. Mm. So you can do scenario planning. You can test them against increased competition, against different sort of market conditions, you know, falling price of the pound, falling price of the dollar, you know, differences in the way that people react and the way that they work. And, and you can find that sort of strategy which will cover most conditions. You you may not be able to deal with a you know a global pandemic where everything is shut. That's probably beyond the bounds of what you know most strategies can take account of. But you could deal with different exchange rates, you can deal with different different things that you know commonly come up and um, commonly you know, businesses struggle with. So In in thinking about sort of corporate strategy, Prashar, what what do you think about sort of, there's a lot of sort of psychology being applied in thinking about sort of how people will adopt a strategy and what's, Mm. what's the utility of a strategy. And as well, I think about how much people feel the, the need to have pre-planned that mm. so if you're if you're of a very military mindset you'll have pre-planned you know yes. your strategy you will be a, a sort of Mars Briggs and you know sort of J actually, and you'll yeah, yeah you'll, you'll have a, a very pre-planned approach but if you're more of a P type as I am and you are you know we we, we would probably sort of not be quite as as rigorous left to our own devices on strategy although I am actually and because well you know I've learned the, the hard Yeah, you, yeah. Would, you would adapt. I'm and and I think to quote Winston Churchill, you know, failing to plan is planning to fail. <laughs> you know, and you know you'll you you do need a plan. You do need to have something to work from, yeah. and and if you don't have that, it, you know, things are, things are not going to end well. But yeah, it's interesting to sort of think about the you know the different personality types and how important a strategy is, yeah, and, and how much people cling to it you would of course over rely on a strategy as well, can't you you can you know you can cling to a strategy okay. long after the mm-hmm. the market conditions have gone away and the strategy is no longer valid so I think it's it's that sort of balance that's really important in life isn't it it's, yeah. it's how you how you achieve that balance
1: I' interested when you say you know when you guys are coming up with strategies, things like that, obviously you have to test first to see if the strategy will, will work mm. when you guys are doing your testing do you focus on trying to prove if it works, so verificationism, or do you try to figure out all the different strategies you can and try and prove them wrong, falsify them? Because like in psychology, uh, obviously we focus on falsificationism, you know, popper, because it's more of a scientific subject. So we focus on, instead of, because nothing can be proved, nothing, that mm-hmm. nothing is ever 100%. And so when we're trying to test something, we're, try, we're trying to prove it wrong, trying to see if it doesn't work to be mm-hmm. honest it, it sounds very backwards but um that's what we really look for we look we try to falsify things instead of verifying things because you can never ever verify anything mm-hmm. um and so when you guys test what do you guys look for do you like
0: there's, there's, a, there's a balance really between sort of looking for, you know, positive and negative. So what I would look for, we, we sort of talked in the previous sort of podcasts about the, you know, try, trying to choose the right people to test something on. So if you, if you yeah. want to prove the, you know, if you, if you want to figure out what the next big election result is going to be, there's that challenge of how do you find the people? Who are representative? Who is representative? Because you know, there's one thing for sure. Standing outside of you know uh, um, an expensive store isn't going to be representative. Standing outside of a discount store, that's not going to be representative. No. So if you were literally in the street with a clipboard asking people how they vote, where would you stand? Or could you even do it from the street? Or well, there's so few people in the street any, anymore who you know c- could give you that sort of broad view. You know, it doesn't work. It's, it's it's biased because you know the people who vote a certain way will shop online. People who vote the other way won't. You, you could find that. So so you've got that challenge first of all of where do you find the people that you're going to test your strategy with. And and um, that that's probably the most difficult part of the whole thing because what I would look for is I would look for evidence that justifies what we're proposing and evidence okay. that doesn't. So I would I would do it in one go and I would I would be going out to uh, sort of individuals, I would run focus groups with individuals, I would take polls where I can of you know groups so you can get really, really big sort of sample sizes in. And I would be saying what does this tell me? And often you're still struggling a bit. The most recent one that I did, we had a few percent of a of a big organization respond. And from that few percent, you're trying to make a sort of take a view of, okay, so is it, you know, when the, part of the issue was we were trying to boost engagement with the organization. Mm-hmm. So you've got the few percent who um, have responded and you're trying to, to figure out, okay, so what's the message that they're giving? And, you know, say, say the message was that, you know, the products weren't of high enough quality. That wasn't actually the message we were getting from this one. But say, say they were they were saying, right, products not high enough quality. Is that the people who were responding because they want to have a moan about the state of the products and everybody else is completely satisfied? Mm. Or is it, is it a case that that's representative of, of everybody else? Mm. So the next step would be, right, let's try something. Let's try putting a bit more money in. And let's try getting a high quality product and let's test that and let's see um, if a high quality product actually results in a better sort of situation. So I'd then start testing stuff. I think I I wouldn't immediately try and pin anything to one strategy. Mm. I think I would be wanting to do the next stage of, okay. so this has given me an indication that something might be an issue here and and that's that's not anything more than a bit of an indication if i want to go the next stage further and i want to say okay I'm, I'm sure that that's an issue now i i will be looking for evidence of okay are the changes as we start to apply things are the changes now that's more difficult in the physical environment if you're if you're shipping goods out and you need to change those goods and you need to make them sort of you know, package them differently or make them differently that's expensive thankfully in the online world if it's if it's what you're doing is delivering you know online courses for example or that kind of thing um, it's not that difficult to change it mm-hmm. Know, you you change the delivery the packaging the approach etc and you can just tweak that and the great thing with the online world is you can do offer beta testing so you can have one and another and you can see which one's most popular yeah. uh, and that, that's that's now quite accepted as being you know a good indicator so I, w- I would be looking for both but you're absolutely right that you know the there is there is nothing that tells us you know perfectly what's going to happen einstein very famously said that there's no experiment that can prove me right but one single experiment can prove me wrong
1: oh,
0: <laughs> exactly, yeah. so any any other observations from a psychological perspective on um, corporate strategy? Anything else that would be worth looking at in terms of formulation and the way we kind of cling to old strategies moving on from a strategy? That's always a fascinating area.
1: Yeah, um, I think because of, you know, natural biases, people tend to just, you know, if something has been something like for a while, they tend to just cling on to that instead of having more of an open mind and seeing how things you know are changing and evolving as you said like mm. the strategies are emerging mm. and so I think we should make sure we have that objective view where we constantly check on you know what's changing what's what's adapting what's going on the, you know the society is changing every day it's not any it's not any good for us to just be, be doing things and having strategies from like 50 years ago they just won't be relevant anymore or just people would not accept them. And so, yeah, we need to have that mindset that, you know, and and be aware that things are ever-changing and don't fall into the trap of being just because you're comfortable in something doesn't always mean it's right and it's probably the best thing. So, yeah, just keeping that evolving mindset.
0: Yeah, it's vital, isn't it? Because people who have, for example, reached board level and started their career some years back, Mm -hmm. and those kind of that way of the business world that way of working has probably moved on a bit and it depends which industry you're in if you're in the concrete business you probably want to change that much but if you're in sort of you know it if your if your business has sort of ai in it then you know things have emerged emerged and changed i mean i was i was involved with sort of ai algorithms back in the 2000s and it was like the stone age now you know what what we were struggling to do an iphone will do in a nanosecond yeah so you know that that's how how much it's moved on and you know the, the the, the sheer difficulty of making, you know, certain you know, pieces of equipment we were working with at the time work in the way that standard consumer goods do now was just the amount of time we spent the amount of resource we committed to to just get certain pieces of equipment to to do what they were supposed to do was amazing now it you know things just work they, yeah. they just work you put your gps receiver in a car it just goes you um, switch on your, your telephone make a call you don't think anything about it yeah. and yet actually that was you know technology that has, has taken a while to to mature so i think particularly in the technology business the the sort of the maxims that sort of held you know even 10 years ago are, are, are gone now you know we we can do things where you know ai is and uh, the ai re- revolution is here we are doing things with ai that we couldn't even conceive of all those years ago and and, and now there are, there are massive opportunities to be had but there are also quite considerable risks and it's about navigating that it's like the industrial revolution first industrial revolution you know the people people went smashing up equipment in the, the first industrial revolution because they thought it was taking away their jobs mm. actually no jobs are just moving and changing Okay, so this is the Evolving Enterprises podcast stories of growth and transformation. Thank you for listening. Thank you.